Hey everyone, this is Jeff Meekum, one of the members behind Headmere's ENT in a Nutshell. I'd like to introduce this special episode that we're publishing on our podcast. This webinar entitled Surviving Your Sub-Eye was put together by members of Headmere's National Otolaryngology Interest Group, or NOIG, and involves a panel of residents and an attending physician giving their tips and tricks to help medical students completing sub-internships in ENT, with many of the principles being applicable to other surgical subspecialties as well. We're publishing the audio of this video webinar with permission from the National Otolaryngology Interest Group and encourage you to look for more events and information from NOIG at headmere.com slash NOIG. My name is Shreya. I'm a fourth year medical student um, and the chair of education for the National Otolaryngology Interest Group. Um, so this is a new interest group that is a branch off of um, the same people who brought you Headmirror. So it's a really exciting new thing that um, will definitely be a benefit for, for all us medical students. So our main goal um, is to create opportunities in mentorship, research, um, clinical exposure for students that are interested in pursuing ENT, um, especially those who have barriers to matching. Um, if you haven't already, please sign up as a student member through the Headmare page and check out our content in the NOIG tab for more information. Um, so today we have five very impressive residents and um, an attending physician um, who is going to talk to us about medical education today. So they're basically going to give us an insight on how to succeed on our sub-internships and away rotations, which I know is very, very um, much of a hot topic right now. Um, so this webinar is specifically focused on current fourth-year medical students, but we hope that um, students from all levels can take away some pearls from it. It should be about an hour to an hour and 15 minutes, um, but if time allows, we will open up questions to the audience. So if you have any additional questions, feel free to put them into the chat, and then at the end, we'll take a look at them. And so on that note, um, the first person I'd like to introduce is Dr. Vilwak. Dr. Vilwak is an associate professor of rhinology and skull-based surgery, and I will pin her to the stage, and she can say hello. Hi, everybody. Thanks for having me. And then on the resident side, um, the first resident we have is Dr. Sianer. He is a PGY4 at a residency program in the South. How's it going, everybody? Thanks for having me. All right. And then we have Dr. Heather Shopper. She's a fourth year resident as well at a residency program in the West. Hello, thanks for joining us this Saturday. And then we have Dr. Harleen Sethi. She is a PGY3 at a traditionally osteopathic program at the East Coast. Everyone, super excited to be here. And then we have Dr. Roberto Solis. He is a PGY3 at a West Coast residency program. Everyone, pleasure to be here today. And then last but not least, we have Dr. Quesada. Um, he is a second year resident at a Midwest institution. Hello, everyone. Very excited to be here. All righty. So um, thank all of you guys for being here today. I know all of us medical students really appreciate your time and your guidance. Um, so on that note, let's go ahead and get started. So one of the, the big things that I feel is difficult for a medical student is figuring out what kind of characteristics residents and faculty are looking for in a strong medical student. Um, Dr. Villock, as an attending physician who evaluates medical students, what are kind of the key things that you look for in an honors student? Yeah, that's a great question. I would say there are kind of three key things, the first of which is enthusiasm. You know, so you're looking for the person that is like actively engaged and not just kind of passively, you know, picking stuff up as they go. You want someone that's going to be looking up cases beforehand, familiarizing themselves with the types of patients that you see, et cetera. 
Um, and I think that kind of dovetails into the second thing I think is important, which is just being prepared. And we recognize that not everybody comes from a home program where they have, uh, you know, an ENT program. And so diff there's different levels um, of knowledge, but we do, I look for people to try to their best to do their due diligence before, you know, coming to a case or coming to a clinic. Um, and I'm having a brain fart. I can't remember the third thing, <laughs> but it was probably related to the first two. Yeah, that's definitely, definitely very helpful. Um, I am interested, though, on a resident perspective, um, if there's anything um, any of you look for in students. I can chime in here a little bit. I definitely agree with what Dr. Bullock said about being enthusiastic, having a good attitude, being excited to learn new things. You are definitely not expected to know everything. That's why you would do a residency is to learn a lot of those things. But you should have a basic understanding of what are some common ENT problems that people might show up with? How do you do a head and neck exam? Um, and then once you see patients be able to come back and say, here's what I saw. This is why I'm thinking that. And here's what I think we should do. It'll probably be wrong, which is fine. If, as a resident, it's wrong a lot of the time too. But the effort of Thinking through it and coming up with an idea of what to do next is really important. Um, and ask ask questions, be engaged, um, but also be respectful of what's going on around you. So if it's like a critical portion of a case and they're like dissecting the nerve or something, that might not be the right time to be asking a whole bunch yep. of questions. But when you're kind of hanging out, residents getting stuff ready, um, definitely pipe in and get the most out of your time there. Okay. Um, kind of on that note, so I know everyone says that you should try your best to be helpful whenever um, you're doing your away rotation or sub-internship. What does that exactly mean? And do you have any tips for students who are wanting to help their team? Yeah, so you just kind of show up and you're just helpful and that's it, it's over. And you have a good rotation. Um, no, that's absolutely not how it works. Uh, you know, everybody mentions, uh, just like Freya said, uh, to be helpful, but what exactly does that mean? Um, I think it's important to start off by having a conversation with the residents, potentially even the attendings at an institution, because every program is a little bit different and trying to get a gauge of, okay, what, do medical students do here that sets them apart, that allows them to maximize their experience while leaving a good impression. So have those conversations um, and try to uh, tailor your, your experience to fit into that role. Um, always be yourself. Um, don't try to be something you're not. You don't want to end up at a place that you don't fit into. Um, but just like Dr. Vilwalk said, you know, you don't want to be a, a passive participant. You want to be actively involved. Um, and we use the term acting internship for a reason. Uh, if you try to envision yourself as a resident, like you're not just a medical student. I, I know it's hard to put yourself in that role because we all have these feelings as though we don't have the knowledge or the experiences, but try to put that to the side and try to legitimately envision yourself as a resident physician. And these are your patients. What would you need to do to ensure that they receive the care that they need to get out of the hospital and to have good outcomes long term, you know. So you want to think about the little things. If they have a uh, a Dopphoff nasal gastric tube, how long is that going to stay in place? Is it going to be removed before they go home? Do they have the teaching? Do they know how to use it? If they have a tracheostomy tube, same thing. Do they know how to do routine tracheostomy care? Um, uh, what's the big picture? Um, what's holding them up in the hospital? Just try to think through these things, and I think uh, it'll help you get a global sense of what's going on with uh, with patients on your service and make you a more active uh, member of the team. Um, and always on, try to anticipate needs. If you're doing all the things I just mentioned, you'll be able to know what you need to do to help uh, with, with patients on your service. Um, if you're, for example, on a head and neck service and you need to change a dressing on this day, you've already thought about these things because you're an active member of the team. And you perhaps the day before have already gotten all the materials ready and they're available uh, for for all members of the teams so that you guys can do this dressing change and it just expedites care. 
Um, so just a few examples, but um, try, try to be as intentional uh, and proactive as possible. Yeah, I really yeah. like that. So kind of the big thing then is, you know, observing a lot. And then from observing, you just kind of can learn over time what needs to be done to be helpful. Um, Dr. Quesada, I did want to ask you, um, I know we were talking about being helpful and being successful, um, kind of as a student, what do you think are good resources that we can use to be prepared for the day? Yeah, I think a lot of the, uh, uh, the speakers here have brought up a good point and being prepared is one of the one of the main things too. And, you know, it's not, it's not every day that you see a complex head and neck patient that just had a very complex surgery the day before and, and or a, a patient that comes into clinic that has uh, maybe the first time you've seen someone with a, with a large uh, head and neck cancer or potential large head and neck cancer. So there's a lot of good resources, uh, both in the Academy website and in both in Penmere that allow you to learn the basics of how to do a good head and neck exam. Uh, knowing knowing the steps and how to do it, and I think as a student, it's it's important, and student, and even as uh, myself as an early resident, uh, knowing how to adequately describe what you're what you're seeing. Uh, so being able to adequately describe, you know, um, the landmarks uh, of the oral exam, your landmarks of your neck. Uh, if you feel a lymph node, where are you feeling this lymph node? And uh, knowing these basic things. Um, and whenever you're presenting a patient in clinic or presenting a patient on rounds, being able to uh, really be able to say what, what you're saying. Uh, and uh, so aside from that, there's, um, you know, don't be afraid to just be proactive with YouTube. And there's a lot of great resources out there that will show you how to do a good head and neck exam. Uh, and then for cases, there's, um, uh, Henry has done a great job at, at providing a, a surgical video atlas that, really highlights the key points in, in cases that uh, will help you at least get the big picture uh, before going into depth and reading a, a, a chapter or reading the step-by-steps and, and other websites. Okay, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and I see that ENT Secrets is, is sitting right behind your shoulder. So I have that book and I recommend everyone else um, to take a look at it if you haven't yet. Um, so I know we've been talking very broadly about ways to be helpful and successful, um, kind of shifting to more on an inpatient setting. What would you say are your expectations for medical students? Yeah, I can uh, touch base on that. So everyone's experience is going to be very different um, institution to institution. So some away rotations, you'll be very involved with uh, rounds and and very involved with uh, presenting. And so at, at some institutions, you're, like when you arrive for rounds, uh, for pre-rounds, you may just gather vitals versus at some institutions like mine, we um, we end up doing like formal rounds and, and it's a good idea to to just ask in the beginning of the rotation. And I was wondering what the expectations are for me. Am I supposed to pick up some patients and how are the presentations? Do you want them? Do you want a full formal presentation or do you just want two liners? And uh, every everyone will vary. Um, and so in the same token, in the inpatient setting, uh, you kind of have to, uh, early on, you might, you might not know how you can get actively involved uh, in helping the team, but just keep an eye out on how the junior residents are interacting and, and what they're doing day to day and start emulating them. So, um, and it's a good idea. You'll see that like if you're in the head and neck service, that's a more involved um, rotation or block. And so, write down everything that the junior resident is writing down in check boxes. So um, we'll often write down things like, oh, I need to call the pharmacy or I need to call a consult and put those down into your own check boxes and, and kind of uh, follow along. And, and instead of asking, how can I help you? Just say, hey, Mike, or hey, John, or hey, Ashley, can I, um, can I call the pharmacist to see if this is the right medication or do you mind if I call that medicine console for that patient's AKI? Things like that. Uh, and um, and some people will get involved in consults in the inpatient service or take overnight call. 
this is a great opportunity to not just uh, shadow and and hover around, but also to to help out that resident. So your job, or I think the job of a good medical student is to make the life of that resident a little bit easier because we get overwhelmed and we're always so busy. And, and so like helping gather supplies, um, maybe even starting the consult note and just getting the HPI down, maybe you have a lot of consults and that really helps out a lot. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, you just want to have a lot of fun um, uh, during the this time with the resident. Like uh, you guys are going through a hard time together, and and making it fun with the resident and and kind of uh, uh, tag teaming things uh, makes the process uh, a lot more enjoyable. Yeah, that that's very good advice. Um, kind of branching off of that, what supplies would you say are good to have while rounding? Uh, I'm happy to chime in on this one. Uh, I am actively on call and have med- uh, medical students on service, uh, and they have come well equipped with all the supplies. Uh, I think first and foremost uh, for everyone, uh, make sure you invest in a very good pen light. You can keep this during your residency. Uh, as you can see here, I have mine readily available uh, at any time. It just makes life so much easier. I will not disclose the brand, but feel free to message me if you're interested because I do not get paid for this. Um, the the big thing is really just each and every day on every service that you're on, because when you do your aways, you're going to bounce around from head and neck to pediatrics, to otology, to rhinology, to different services. Just try to get a gauge of um, what the needs are of the team uh, and, and have those supplies readily available. Um, regardless of what service you're on, always have a tongue depressor ready. You always have a Q-tip ready. Have the basic supplies, gauze. Um, and it's not just about having the things ready. I think it's it always looks good if you're able to anticipate what a team might need. Um, I remember when I was in uh, uh, the medical student role and speaking to residents, they told me, you don't want to hand them the tongue depressor when they ask for it. You want to have it open and you're already handing it to them before they even ask. Um, so that's just taking that initiative and being on that next uh, uh, level and uh, being an active compo- uh, an active uh, member of the, the, the patient care process. Um, and invest in a good bag, uh, carry supplies if you're able to, if the institution allows you to do that. Um, and uh, if you need to go to that and, and, and grab something out of it, um, you, you can do so quickly. And it just, again, helps expedite uh, the patient care process and rounds and, uh, and shows that you're really taking the time to think about the things that you might need um, to, to care for your patients. Um, I also recommend, you know, keeping a few pens on you. Us residents, we're pretty bad at losing pens. So having pens, uh, you can just uh, lend your your residents uh, one uh, if they misplace theirs, and also keep a notebook uh, with you. Um, it's it's nice to jot down notes, key pearls that you learn. I know a lot of us use our phones and text, or potentially even iPads, but that can sometimes, uh, unfortunately, uh, be misconstrued as you're not necessarily paying attention. So get a nice little notebook um, on on Amazon for like two to five dollars, and and, and jot things down uh, and, uh, and and go home and learn and and uh, come back uh, prepared the, the next day. Thank you, that's, that's really helpful. Um, I'm sure all of these supplies, um, having them on hand comes really handy while on call as well. Um, Dr. Solis, could you talk a little bit about what call is like for medical students? Yeah, um, I know on, I did three away rotations and not everyone makes you take call at what I've realized and, and some will. Um, so I would say that if you do have that opportunity to take call with a resident, uh, it's great. That's a really nice time on one-on-one to spend time with a resident. Sometimes it's very low key and you get to just ask questions about uh, the program, the ins and outs. But also, it's a time to show that um, that that you can be helpful for the team. And so, um, like I said, most of the time you're going to be walking in with uh, with a resident to to a patient room and just seeing what they may may need. Like, let's say it's going to be a console like dysphagia or dysphonia or an airway console. Like a nice thing that I I found that some medical students will do and. I won't specifically be like, hey, can you go get me that scope? Um, I'll just be like, oh, I'm going to go grab the scope. 
But better yet is when uh, medical students like, hey, uh, what if I go grab the scope and I meet you in the emergency room and I'll take it with me? And and that's very helpful. It takes it saves you a two to five minutes, whatever time it takes to get that scope. And all the time you can save is very helpful. And so little things like that make a difference. And and so, um, um, yeah, I, I don't know if every program, like, Sethi, what do you think about, like, in your experience, do, do uh, medical students at, at your program take call or what, what goes on? Yeah, I'm happy to piggyback off of that. Um, so traditionally, osteopathic sub-interns don't really take call, um, generally from what I've seen. But that doesn't mean that you can't talk to the residents um, and let them know, hey, if something comes in over the weekend, will you let me know if there's like a super interesting case, um, some emergency case goes back. I've definitely called students in for interesting things. So just showing enthusiasm, showing interest, being willing to support a poor resident who's going to be on call um, is always appreciated. Um, and just showing enthusiasm, like everyone's already said, is always really good. So traditionally, we don't have students take call, but there are many ways to, you know, spend some extra time and see some cool cases outside of regular hours. Awesome. Okay. That's very helpful. Um, I think I feel a lot more comfortable on being on the inpatient service and doing call. So thank you guys for that. Um, but kind of shifting gears a little bit, um, what can we do in a clinic setting um, that would allow us to put our best foot forward? Or how do you recommend we prepare for clinic? Dr. Billock, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think that one of the things that's nice now that most institutions have some version of an, of an electronic health record is that typically you'll know in advance what clinic you're supposed to be a part of, and you can actually look through some of those patient lists. And particularly if you find yourself in like a peds clinic and you're at a tertiary care academic hospital, there's going to be like some weird like syndromes and other things. So that gives you the opportunity if you can look it up in advance, you know, you can know like, okay, what is the chromosomal abnormality? What are the most likely um, ENT pathologies? And I think that that can really help you shine and avoid, you know, either the resident or the attending that you're working with having to like Google search what those things are if they don't immediately remember that as well. Um, and I think the other thing that's important too, and that, you know, that some of the other folks here have highlighted, but I don't think it can be highlighted enough, is really reaching out proactively to see what people's expectations for you are. And every attending is going to be a little bit different. Um, and so, you know, some are going to want you to just kind of shadow them. Some are going to want you to like go see the patient and then, you know, give a presentation to them. And then it's like, well, do they want like the full, you know, 10 minute med student H&P or do they want like the, okay, this person is here, da, 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 um, kind of thing. So I think if you can arrange that in advance, it helps you, you know, put your best foot forward in the way that the attending would like you to. And then it also shows us that like you're cognizant that people like to do things differently and you want to make the most of your experience with us. That's very helpful. Um, on the resident standpoint, um, do you guys have any other advice? Yeah, I'm happy to build upon that. Um, so I think the same tools-wise, as far as things to have in a clinic that'd be helpful as a medical student, have kind of already been said, but I'll reiterate, um, having that pen and paper, I always keep like a blank sheet of paper in my coat if I want to note down things, seeing a patient. Sometimes residents and attendings want to draw for you and they start scrambling around for a paper. So just having stuff ready for people to teach you with is super helpful. Um, having tongue blades. And then the other big thing is just having a white coat that's clean and ironed. Um, I think one thing it's really good to present yourself as well put together, but also remember that you're representing the attending and you're representing their office and the institution when you see patients. So um, it's always bodes well to contribute um, positively to how the attendings received in the, in the office itself. Um, other things have already been mentioned. I think it was excellent that Dr. Volwak uh, mentioned taking a look at the patient schedule. You can also ask the resident at the end of the day, hey, can I grab a copy of the, the patient schedule, or you can ask an administrator, um, just want to see who's coming in. I am found it particularly helpful with head and neck patients. When you're looking at tumor staging, it can be a whirlwind of a, an office to be a part of. Um, mm -hmm. Same with laryngology clinics, and we've already talked about peds clinics. So I think that's all really helpful. 
And then if you're going to a general clinic, I think just studying general ENT topics like otitis media, knowing your paradise guidelines for tonsillitis, knowing a little bit about allergy and different kinds of antihistamines and sprays and things that we offer um, is generally helpful. And then maybe just look at an audiogram, have an idea of how to talk through that. Oftentimes I'll just kind of try to talk through it with a med student and um, we don't expect you to know everything, but always helpful to have some words to start with, some vernacular, know what the, the O's and the X's are, and um, we'll usually just take it from there. Um, and Dr. Quesada, did you want to weigh in on any of that? Yeah, I, I think a lot of great points have been highlighted. Um, I would uh, like to emphasize that it's always great to just introduce yourself to the clinic staff. Uh, if I, I particularly like to get there early and kind of introduce myself to the, to the nursing staff, to the medical assistant staff, the administrative staff. And I was very open about me just wanting to help. And I would say, or um, just wanting to help in any way possible, um, if it, whether it be, you know, helping with patients, whether it be, you know, helping set up a scope. Um, and that way also everybody around you knows that you're, you're willing to help and they're, they're, may be more likely to kind of give you that, that little thing that they have the next patient coming in or the patient already came in and uh, and they know that you want to be an active part of the care team. Um, and I, I think overall that helps in any aspect, not just clinic, but if uh, being in the operating room or wherever you are, uh, just making sure that everybody knows that you're there to help. And I think the other things mentioned are, are very key as well, knowing uh, uh, knowing how to, what, what your expectations are, and if your expectations are, are to present the patient to a resident or to an attending, uh, the best thing is just to uh, just practice that. Practice knowing how to uh, do a good, a good subjective or a good HPI, and then uh, solely trying to work on your, on, on your goals in regards to your assessment. And if you're able to bring a plan to the table, I think that's always, as a medical student, I think it's... Uh, impressive that you're thinking about that set because you know one of the hardest transitions going from a student to a resident is is being able to do a good assessment and develop a good plan uh, for for your patients okay all right well thank you guys on on kind of describing all of that for us um, I know one of the biggest um, anxiety provoking moments for medical students is being in the operating room. So I thought we could touch on that um, just a bit. So we talked about ways to kind of prepare for, for um, being on service in general. What are good ways for us to be prepared for cases and prepared for being asked questions? I can jump in here. Um, the OR is obviously the glamour of ENT and why many people are interested in it. But it's really hard to stand out and to contribute because as a medical student, you don't know how to operate. That's fair. Uh, as a resident, you also don't know how to operate. That's why you're a resident. Uh, but the really important things is to know why that patient is there, what procedure they're having and have a general understanding of what that procedure looks like. You're not gonna know all the details, um, but it is very helpful to the night before, maybe read through their chart, kind of get a background on what's going on with them, and then watch a YouTube video or look at Iowa protocols or something that goes kind of step-by-step step through what this surgery looks like. The more that you know what's going on, the greater likelihood that you'll have the opportunity to do something um, your degree of involvement will vary significantly by what institution you're in, what procedure it is, who the staff is. And so being ready to jump in and help if you're asked to do so is really helpful, but you shouldn't expect that you will be doing like the surgery because you're not. Um, and it is also when you're thinking about preparing, um, I would err on the side of preparing the day before. So if you wanted to look over scans with a resident or talk about the case coming up, make an effort to do that the day before, not like the morning of, because at 7 a.m. everyone's running around trying to consent patients, trying to finish rounding, and that may not be the most opportune time to say, hey, like, can we look at this scan together? Mm -hmm. Okay. Dr. Sethi, do you have more you could add to that? Yeah, I'd love to build upon that. That was a really good start. Um, 
So on top of studying and being ready for the case and being prepared, um, I think in general, like Dr. Sharper was saying, if you get to do anything in the case, it's kind of this special quick opportunity. Um, oftentimes, you know, we'll have students help when we're closing, if it's a big neck dissection or a thyroidectomy or something. And oftentimes we'll say, hey, you, you know, have you thrown many stitches? Um, you know, will you tie this knot for me? And it can kind of come up all of a sudden and catch you off guard. Um, but I, I always kind of go off the mantra, practice how you play. So if you are at home and you're tying, like, I think pretty much I have um, a thread on my countertop and I just like tie knots while I'm cooking every day. So I like tie like 10 knots. Um, so tie knots at home, tie single-handed knots, tie double-handed knots, try to tie with your left hand. Um, just so when you get that one opportunity, you're not just kind of deer in the headlights. Um, Cause we definitely have students tie and stitch and we're not trying to catch off guard. It's just that there's not as many opportunities as opposed to general surgery for you to get in there. And so, so just be ready to go. Um, it's very helpful if you've practiced on a suture kit, um, you've done like single or interrupted stitches or running stitch, maybe get fancy and do a horizontal mattress, but try to practice where you can um, and keep your hands busy. Um, and then in terms of kind of day of surgery, if there's a lot of cases going on, you can always make yourself a cheat sheet the day before, just like you ask for a clinic schedule before going to clinic. You can ask for the OR schedule from the resident the day before, um, just so you know what case is coming up and you're not just kind of caught off guard when you're in the OR and you're trying to help set things up. Um, and the very last thing is sometimes I understand it can be really overwhelming if you're on an otology service, a head and neck service, and the cases are just way over your head and use most of the time way over my head. Um, so try to do a little literature review. If it's a super unique case, if it's some rare tumor, it's some, you know, salivary cystic duct random tumor, do a lit review, see what's out there, see what's new. And if you're working with some specialty attending, you can always ask them a question. Hey, I saw this article, like, you know, are you still treating it this way? Or it's an easy way to kind of pick up conversation and make an impact without necessarily <laughs> looking like, you know, everything about the subject, um, but still trying to kind of look like you're interested. So yeah. literature reviews are good on on super unique topics in many cases. Okay. I already am taking your advice. I have my knots right here. So definitely well recommend done. that one. Yeah. <laughs> they look very square. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so building off of that a bit more, what would you guys say are the do's and don'ts of the OR? What do we want to make sure we do? And what do we absolutely want to make sure we never do? while we're there. Yeah, I can uh, jump in. Um, so there's a lot of steps within the OR itself. Like uh, there's a pre-op, there's an intra-op, and then post-op. Um, I say in the pre-op setting, like obviously come in prepared, but uh, join your resident in greeting the patient. It's always a good idea to just uh, introduce yourself. Hey, I'm I'm Rob. I'm one of the MS4s on service. I'm going to be observing your surgery. Um, and then walk into the operating room. And when you walk into the operating room, um, you should be mindful that, that there's many people in the operating room and everyone wants to know um, who's who. And so uh, a good medical student would uh, go and introduces themselves to the circulator. Hey, my name's Rob. I will be, I'm a, one of the medical students on the service. I can write down my name on the board and then you write down your name so they're not asking you. Uh, go to the scrub tech and like, hey, I'm Rob. Um, uh, can I get you my gloves and gowns and get them your gloves and gowns? Oftentimes they'll open them up for you, but they appreciate it. They should never be asking you, hey, what size gloves are you using? And then obviously introduce yourself to the attending. Um, and so that's uh, that's setting yourself up for success um, before you even scrub in. And then, as you know, in, in the operating room, it, it is uh, as much as we try not to be a hierarchy, it is a hierarchy. And so um, as the medical student, uh, you, you have to be very um, aware of what's going on. And so, like, don't don't get in the way of when when people are trying to to do something for the patient. Everyone's very focused in on the patient and getting the case going. And so uh, be mindful in that and try to step in to help out as much as possible. Um, let's see. Um, so when you, um, you don't want to be just standing in the operating room, you also want to be 
the hardest working person in that room. And Brandon actually uh, was the person that taught me a lot of these things. And so I appreciate him, but you wanna be helping the circulator as much as possible. So uh, the first few times you might feel uncomfortable as to what do I do to help out, but simple things as getting the bed in the room, transferring the patient, putting on the SCDs, putting on the pads on their, on their heels or whatnot. And, and then getting the, the bed out of the room, um, those type of things go a long way uh, or getting like a warm blanket for the patient before and after the case, mm-hmm. like those, uh, those things, you probably won't get a lot of thank yous, but people will notice and will appreciate that. Um, Brandon, do you want to jump in and add more things, um, uh, to this topic? Uh, there's so much to add and, and this is like a great opportunity to really, uh, show, um, residents and attendings that you're hardworking and you get it uh, by being very observant. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm just smiling over here because Rob actually listened. He just basically said everything I was going to say. Um, but yeah, no, the warm blanket thing, that goes a long ways. I mean, just think about it. If you're a patient getting surgery, you're waking up from anesthesia, it's nice to have a warm blanket on you. Um, so little, little things like that go, go, go a really long ways. And when, when you're in the operating room, you want to be, again, you want to be a proactive participant. You don't want to just be passively standing by. So when you're not actively putting on the SCDs or helping transfer the patient, you don't have to be overzealous and like trying to find something to do at every moment. Sometimes just take a step back and just observe. And if you start to see that this person is always doing this for this case, and it's a pretty simple thing that I could potentially help with, like getting the warm blankets, then you can step in and fulfill that role and ultimately be a, a vital member of the team. Um, and, and just to take things in a little bit of a different direction, when, when you're in surgery, don't, don't uh, feel as though you can't ask questions, but there's a way to ask questions, right? So when you see a structure on the screen, don't say, what is that structure? Instead say, you know, I was reading last night and I know that the um, the natural loss for the maxillary sinus is in this position. And I think that that's what I'm seeing, but could you please kind of give me a little bit more um, uh, information as to whether that's correct or not. And, and, and you have to kind of sell yourself to a certain degree and, and showcase that you are knowledgeable, you have come prepared because, you know, I hate to say this, but being on the other side of things, especially with an ENT, most programs that you're going to go to and most people you're going to interact with, they're just really laid back, really good people. Nobody wants to make you feel bad. And sometimes I feel like we don't give medical students enough opportunities to highlight themselves. So you have to kind of take that initiative and and, and show them, again, not in an overzealous way, but uh, in, in, a, in a manner that uh, shows that you're enthusiastic, that you've come prepared, that you're engaged, that you're paying attention, that you're curious, that you want to learn. Um, so uh, continue to work on those things. It may not be a slam dunk the first time you try it, but that's okay. Continue to try. You'll have many cases that you'll be involved in, uh, and uh, your experiences within the OR will just continue to get better. And, and talk to your colleagues, medical students that have rotated before, um, you medical students at that institution, see what worked well for them in the operating room, get a sense of what the culture is like. And I, I think it'll it'll make things a little bit less anxiety provoking. Okay. All right. That's really, really good advice. Um, especially, you know, trying to sell yourself and making sure that you're not coming off just as a student who's just random, randomly asking questions um, is really helpful. I never thought about it in that perspective. So thank you for that. Um, So um, kind of shifting gears a little bit. So we all know how important research is for for applying the ENT um, at this point. Um, Do you think this is something feasible that you can get an opportunity out of during a one month long rotation? I think that's a little tricky. Um, You know, there are some programs where, you know, there are ongoing research opportunities that you could try and get yourself plugged in with before your sub-eye starts. You know, so for example, at at our institution, we have a standing research meeting and and outside folks are welcome to come. 
but I think that can take like a lot of thought and planning beforehand. I think that the most likely things that are to come out of a one month rotation would be something like a case report or something like that. But that's going to be very random and kind of dependent upon what you see, you know, in clinic. And if there's anything, you know, worthy of a case report that comes in, you could never, I mean, if you want, I, I wouldn't say that it hurts to ask around and see if anybody's needing help tidying up, you know, things like if data's already been collected, but the rate limiting step is like actually writing the manuscript. You know, maybe they just need someone to help kind of put together a lit search and start, you know, putting together the, the bones of a introduction and a discussion. Um, but I think that's going to be very situationally dependent. Okay. All right. That makes a lot of sense. Okay. So another big thing um, with rotations, I know a lot of away rotations will do as well as having an end of rotation presentation. And so a lot of students are often asked um, to present on an interesting topic at the end of their um, rotation. Do any of you have tips on how to be successful in this presentation or how to even go about selecting the topic and, and really, you know, trying to impress the residents and the faculty? I'm happy to weigh in on that, Treya. Um, so yeah, the faded presentation. Um, oftentimes, one of the biggest things I'll start with is that we we usually I'll tell you it only needs to be about five or ten minutes. It really only needs to be about five or ten minutes. So usually it doesn't bode well when you're going on for about 20, 25 minutes. It might be super interesting and it might all be really great, but our attention span's pretty short. And um it usually just bodes well if you kind of present something nice, hold our attention briefly. It's really just a test to see if you can put something together, be confident, um, and you know have good speaking and presentation skills. It's less about the information and data, but certainly you want it to be uh, cohesive and tight. Um, I would generally, I think it's good when students avoid the quote unquote forgettable topics. Um, you don't necessarily need to present on tonsillitis or otitis media or something that's um, a little more of a general topic. Something that's a little more interesting is better, um, but that can be a little hard to think of sometimes. So I recommend either looking at cases or patients you've seen while on service with the residents um, for ideas of what to present. You can use your own research um, or use experiences from other hospitals to talk about patients you've seen. Um, oftentimes, you know, uh, students will will talk about some topic related to research they're doing, and that ends up being a really good plug for you as an applicant as well to be able to uh, talk about that. A um, couple last few things, always practice presenting your presentation. Um, much easier to flip through the slides and be like, yeah, I know it. Yeah, I know it. Yeah, I know it. And then you just kind of, again, deer in the headlights when you're up there and everyone's staring at you and the attendees looking at their watch. Um, so just, you know, present to a friend, present to the mirror, whatever. Always good to just practice it, especially when you're trying to pronounce otolaryngology 10 times and you get tongue twisted. Um, other thing is just know your audience. If you're presenting at Grand Rounds and there's going to be specialists there, some skull-based neurotology surgeon, and you're going to be talking specifics about something, maybe run it by a resident or just double check your facts just to make sure everything um, adds up well. And then the other biggest thing is don't feel like you need to reinvent the wheel every single presentation. We've been through what you guys are going through, and we don't want you to create 10 different presentations for every sub-I. So it's okay to recycle. It's okay to reuse. I wouldn't do the same one at every single institution, but it's okay to have a few and, and just see which one you think is most interesting and just keep refining it, make sure it's correct. Um, and, you know, those are kind of the, the big things for that from a resident perspective. Okay. Yeah, great point, uh, points, Carlene. Um, just one thing I wanted to add is that uh, you should also take advantage of this opportunity uh, to work with an attending. So, like, let's say you saw an interesting case with an attending, use that as an opportunity to network, get to know that attending, and possibly um, uh, get ideas on on the topic. And that bodes well for one, building a relationship, and two, that could potentially become a letter writer for you. And so just something to keep in my mind on, like I always recommend to medical students target specific attendings and use that to your advantage. Yes, definitely. That's a very good point. Okay. Um, so at the end of our rotation, 
Another question that comes up is, should we be sending emails or, you know, like thank you letters? Um, and then kind of along the lines of that, if your rotation was earlier in the year, how can you stay connected with these programs so that by the time it's, you know, application season, interviews are going on, they're not completely, have not forgotten about you and you're still connected somehow? Yeah, I can definitely chime in on this question. I think it's a very controversial topic, I think, amongst many students, uh, knowing when to email, when not to email, when are you emailing too much, is my email looking all right, is it, and it's it's a difficult thing to do, but I I think it's very important to keep your, your mentors informed and the people that have invested time in you while you were in your away rotations that you keep them updated on how you're doing, how uh, the the injury trail is going, um, and especially people that have invested time for you. Uh, if you worked with an attending, for example, you had a rotation presentation and you connected well with them, I, I think it's very valuable to keep them informed on how you're doing and and always be, I think, being humble and being very appreciative of the opportunities that you're given is, it goes a long way. Um, at the end of the day, you were giving this opportunity to rotate at an institution and they someone in, at some point had to make a decision between you and someone else. And it's uh, and for some reason they, they chose you and they spend time and resources with you. Um, so I, it's, I think it's, it's very reasonable to be sending uh, thank you emails. And I, I wouldn't just be blindly sending that email to people and saying uh, thank you in a very generic way. But if you have something meaningful to say, something that connected well with you or resonated well with you, I think it's, uh, it's reasonable to do so. Um, and I, I would be very cautious in, um, uh, in making sure that your emails is well written. Uh, I, uh, as, um, I have a lot of friends look over my emails, uh, Rob sees a lot of my emails. I actually probably like 95% of my emails that I send out, he, he gets uh, to read them. So, uh, have, have that, have that buddy, have that friend that, uh, reach over your emails, make sure everything looks good and that you're not missing something clearing after you've read it a hundred times. Okay. Dr. Um, Sethi, do you have any other kind of insight on how we can stay connected um, later in the year? Yeah, I certainly have a few morsels to contribute. Um, one thing, and I know Dr. Volok kind of hit this pretty much on the nail earlier. It's really hard and, and ambitious to pick up a full research project, but something that I think students can be successful in doing is picking up that case report or case study. And just like Roberto was saying, when you give that presentation, it's a really good way to network with an attending. Once you give that presentation, you pretty much have the case report written and you have an attending, AKA a, a PI to publish that case report with. So if that is your focus for your presentation, just to use that and then, you know, turn it into research and um, you can be using your time wisely. Um, so picking up some sort of small project is helpful if you can with a resident to keep your foot in the door, because I understand some students have to audition super early in the year and then it's January and you did a great job, but we've had a lot of amazing students and it's a little fuzzy when you get to, to ranking programs. Um, another way to stay in the loop is there's multiple conferences and meetings going on during the year. And I know as students, you guys are super busy. You've got school, you're juggling applications. But if there's local meetings, state meetings, things you can zoom on to, you can always log on, try to stay in touch. You know, you try not to be too overbearing and just kind of go around shaking hands. But if you're if you're willing to make meaningful interactions and do your homework and research as far as who's going to be where, um, you can certainly make the connections you need with program directors, attendings, residents. Um, and, and we love getting to know you guys on rotation. So when you're done with rotation, keep in touch with us, send us a message. If you see an interesting case, let them know. Um, if you have any meaningful interactions to make, we want to hear from you and, you know, we wholeheartedly support you. So definitely those are, those are good ways to extend all the work you do during your summer. Okay. All right. That was definitely very well said. And I appreciate that, that advice a lot. Um, speaking of advice. So those are kind of all the, the questions I had for you guys specifically, but do any of you guys have any last words of advice or important things that you think we should know um, before we start our rotations? I do. Uh, I think it's important to realize that residents are interested in you and we want to teach you. Um, we're not that scary. 
maybe sometimes the intern thinks I'm a little scary. Um, but we're there to like help teach you things, help you learn. We want to get to know you and see if you are somebody that would fit well with our group. And so, um, ask us questions. Like if there's things that you specifically want to learn about, like be like, Hey, can we talk about how do you diagnose chronic sinusitis? We can talk about that. Um, but also realize we are very tired and very busy. And so if there's something that you want or you need, give us some lead time. Um, ask maybe, Hey, on Friday, can we do this? Be like, great. I have a couple of days to put that together and we can carve out some time to do it. And we're happy to do so. That's great. Um, I can jump in next. Uh, uh, good points, Heather. Um, I think something that uh, we didn't mention was that when you're done with the end of the day, it's nice to check in with uh, with the residents um, in your team. So if you're on the head and neck service or on whatever service uh, you're part participating in, don't just leave at the end of the OR day, go to another operating room and say, Hey, do you guys need an extra hand? Uh, my case just finished or go touch in with the chief and then say, Oh, I'm done with the day. Do you need anything? Or there's this pending. Uh, can I do that? And then lastly, always check in with the junior resident. They're the ones that are at the front lines, just taking care of the work. And, and if you can offload something that, uh, simple or help them out, that that's very helpful. And so, um, and then last thing, it's a very, uh, very stressful time, and, and but uh, it's a very enjoyable time and an opportunity for growth and, and for you to, to know if this is truly what you want to do and also what kind of program you want to be at. I'll try, man. Um, all great advice thus far. Uh, to contribute to that, I'll say these away rotations, they're a perfect balance between being yourself, playing the game, and working really hard. And if this panel is an evidence of the fact that there's people out here who care and want to help you, I don't know what is. Um, uh, just like um, just like Heather said, there's so many residents and physicians out there that want to help you through this process. And don't hesitate to have these conversations with them. You know, when you when you arrive. Talk to them. Hey, can you please tell me about uh, the best medical students you've worked with on the way rotation? What kind of characteristics they possess? What do they do to stand out? And 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 try to uh, embody some of those characteristics while still being yourself, but also breaking out of your comfort zone to a certain degree, because again, you are still playing that game. Um, you guys, by being here alone, and those of you who will be listening to this in the future, obviously care. Uh, and if you put in the effort, it's a lot of effort. It's a lot of work, just like Rob said. Um, these away rotations, in my honest opinion, my away rotations were much more difficult than uh, much more difficult and, and stressful than than any of my my resident experiences because I I knew it was just a it was a a short period of time that I needed to do what I needed to do to get to where I wanted to get to. So. Um, Definitely see it through. You guys care. You will be successful. Um, and we're excited to have you guys on panels in the future and potentially join us as uh, colleagues one day. So weigh in and build upon the amazing things that have been said already. Um, but again, just to echo what's been said, we really empathize with how unnerving this process is. I know it feels like you're in a pressure cooker, especially in these sub-internship rotations, but just know that we're on your side as residents and we have mountains of advice, just ask for it and you know, we'll, we'll let loose. Um, but overall, just remember to keep your head up and really be proud of everything that you've done up until this point. This process is a marathon, okay? So while these sub-eyes are important, Everything you've done up until this point also makes and breaks, you know, you making it to the next level. So be proud of that. And then just stay hungry and optimistic towards everything that's going to happen this year. Um, it's going to be a journey and you just got to take it day by day. And always a good idea if you're really worried about yourself doing something wrong, just check in with one of us. Say, hey, can I get some feedback? Something I can do better. Um, was this okay? And we'll, we'll always be honest with you. Um, so we got you and you guys are going to do great, but you're taking the first important step by being here today. 
Thank you guys all so much. Um, I can't say enough how much we appreciate your time and um, energy and amazing words of advice today. Um, you guys are clearly very insightful and clearly very successful. And so we can only hope to get to the level that you guys are at right now. Um, to the audience, we do have a little bit of time, so we can go through any questions that have not been answered yet. So let's take a look at the chat. Some of, we've been answering some of those questions as we've gone, but I think one that hasn't been answered was about applying as an international medical graduate, if I remember. Okay, um, you know, what I know none of you guys um, come from that background, but do you have any um, knowledge or experience from maybe your colleagues that you could touch on? Yeah, that's a, a, a difficult situation, not just in ENT, but in most specialties, uh, not just getting, you know, everything situated from your from your medical education being validated in the U.S., but ENT is just a, a particularly difficult specialty to uh, to be part of. And I, my, my my best advice would be to reach out to residents that are uh, are or have been uh, in that situation, and particularly those that have you know that are further along in their career and have to be able to say what they did, how they were able to be successful. And I think the, the question also mentioned something about uh, doing a research year, a research uh, uh, position somewhere. And, you know, it's it's it seems from what I from what I've seen that it's it's common for for people that are coming as international medical graduates to to do some type of rotation or some type of appointment that way. Uh, however, um, it, it, I would advise to reach out to these to these residents or. Uh, even to the people that are offering these uh, research positions to see uh, how they would be best fitted for them and how they can, you know, be intentional about their time and intentional about their learning um, and how they can best set themselves up for success. Okay, that's definitely um, very good points there. There is another question. Um, from a student who is a um, second year, so she is having some difficulties finding ENT research and just wanted to ask all of you, was it easy for you to find ENT research? Did you find ENT research during your first and second years of medical school? Or is it easier to find research once you're actually doing your ENT rotations during your clinical years? I touch base uh, quickly on that. So. Um, that's a very good question, Adrian. Um, Pompeo actually posted a link on Headmare um, that's specifically targeted to individuals that are from no home ENT programs. And there it outlines just the specifics on how to find uh, research and it. And also it can be applied to anyone, but you have to be very proactive and very um, uh, creative on how you find those opportunities and and it may be hard to find an ENT specific uh, project but you can there's a lot of crossover and other specialties and and still like you might have to knock on 10 doors before you get one opportunity so um, so something to uh, to consider but I would encourage you to read that page it's very very helpful yes definitely I've taken a look at that as well and it is very very helpful in that regard I would add too that there is value in research that's not necessarily ENT specific. Um, most of my research in during medical school was about education and communication, and that was a longitudinal thing. Did it for years, and that's something that I talked about at interviews. And the dedication to continuing a project mm -hmm. is valuable regardless of what that project is, and the ability to produce a thing, whether it's a presentation or a paper. Um, that you can talk about at depth and have some passion for is valuable, even if it's not necessarily ear, nose, and throat. Yeah, I think about it too in terms of what are the skills that you gained. You know, I came, I also came from a medical school without a home program, and I didn't have it really any significant ENT research. But like, like Heather was saying, I had participated in some other things, and so you just have to have an understanding of like, okay, these are like 
the five or 10 tangible skills that I gained from these experiences that can be translated to any project, right? And to, to deliver whatever the finished product is that your team is looking for, whether it's like you being the one that knows how to do the IRBs or you being the one that knows how to design a trial protocol, those things can be used to pivot um, to any field. And to some of the questions about like, how do, how do you get a mentor um, in that kind of similar situation too? I, I would be intentional about how you're reaching out to try and attract a mentor. Because if you just send an email being like, hey, will you be my mentor? You know, the, the first question is always going to be, you know, how can I help you? And if you don't have a way of articulating like what the specific ask is or how we can like meaningfully engage in this mentor-mentee relationship, you're going to be much less successful. And I think it's the same thing too, if you just kind of cold call or cold email someone asking like, hey, do you have a research project for me? You know, my expectation is when someone is approaching me, I can help guide the process, but I'm always much more interested to know what that individual thinks is interesting or where they see a gap in clinical care or the literature, and then how we collaboratively can help address that together, as opposed to just like, give me whatever leftover scrap project you have, because I'm super desperate, because I don't think my CV is good enough. You know, I think that those are fundamentally different conversations. Definitely. Okay. Um, I think we have time for maybe one more question. Um, so let's answer this one. So as an osteopathic student without a home program, this has been a very um, helpful seminar. So that's good to hear. Um, her question is um, regarding asking for letters of recommendation. Is it best to make it known early on that this is something I'm pursuing or is it better to discuss um, this towards the end of the, the rotation? I kind of started replying to this already, but it, it is better to let people know early on that you would like a letter from them. Uh, not the first day, like don't walk in hot and be like, hey, I'm here, write me a letter. Uh, but giving them some lead time to know that you are interested in getting to know them better will give them the opportunity to also reciprocate that. You can try to work with them several times throughout your rotation, talk about what your goals are, where you see yourself kind of in this community, um, and have your CV and your personal statement ready to go because they will often ask for that because they want to review it and kind of get to know your background a little bit better. Um, on away rotations or even your own home sub-I if you have one of those, the program director or the chair will ex often expect you to ask for this letter. And so you're not being weird or rude or whatever, asking for it. Be polite, but they expect to write a letter for you if you're there for the month. So have those things ready and give them some time to think about it and be able to get to know you a little better. Mm -hmm add to that phenomenal advice from uh, Heather, you know, when you ask for these letters of recommendation, you don't just want a letter of recommendation. Anybody can get a letter of recommendation, right? I sat on the interview committee um, a few years ago and uh, I got to see letters and I got to see good letters and I got to see great letters. So you want somebody to write you a great letter of recommendation. And if they're not able to do that, that's fine. I mean, I know it may be anxiety provoking as an applicant, but they're doing you a favor by not writing you a letter. If it's not going to be spectacular, you, you can certainly try your best to utilize your network to reach out to somebody else who is going to provide you with a great letter of recommendation. And if you're planning on getting a letter while on an away rotation, you really want to be proactive. Again, that's the key word. I'm going to keep saying proactive, proactive, proactive and try to meet up with this in, uh, individual that you're, you're, you're targeting. Like Rob was saying, pick somebody and target them and try to meet with them two to three times during your rotation. The more they know you, the better they're gonna be able to write um, uh, about you and the experiences that they've had with you. Don't just be in the OR with them, you know, try to get them in clinic, try to get them outside in their office hours and get to know one another. These are the ways that you can uh, really get that, that strong letter of uh, recommendation. Make it easy for your letter writer. You know, one, one thing, like you can print out prior evaluations from some of your other rotations so that they see that longitudinally you've been great. You know, just highlight like the good narrative feedback. Um, a lot of times we, I'm sorry, my daughter's singing in the background. A lot of times we, 
you know, we recognize that you have a more substantial interaction with the residents. So we'll be, we typically try to solicit feedback from the residents as well, but you can be proactive, you know, like, like Brendan saying too, and, you know, ask if one of the residents would be willing, you know, to send whoever your letter writer is some of their feedback, you know, from how you did or tell a story about a time when you did really well on rotation, because then we can make the letter sound much more personal and how it relates to your goal and what's in your personal statement and all of this stuff, you know, as opposed to kind of being like, I mean, they showed up every day and they didn't mess anything up, you know, but you want a lot more oomph to your letter than just kind of that bare minimum um, that Brandon was talking about. Yeah, that's, that's all great, great advice. Um, sorry. Want to try to wrap things up. It's now 510. So once again, thank you all of you guys for your time. Um, we are so appreciative of you guys being here and all of your advice um, to the audience. Thank you for being here as well. Um, this webinar was actually recorded today. So in case you missed some of it, um, it will be posted online in the near future on the Headmere website under the NOIG tab. Um, so keep an eye out for more webinars and educational content that will be released by NOIG in the near future. And also be sure to sign up um, on headmare.com to be a member to stay in the loop for all the things that are coming up. Well, all right. Well, thank you guys and good luck with the rest of um, your rotations. And on the, that note, we can end this um, webinar.